This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Cartographers, a podcast that charts our changing cultural landscape and provides hope for 21st century Christian leaders. We are Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales, a pastor and a PhD. Welcome to this conversation. As we navigate the culture wars in this series called Stuck in the Middle, we're trying to bring you different ways of thinking about how we relate more civilly amongst one another in our towns, in our neighborhoods, and online. And so in this conversation, we sit down with Harrison Scott Key. We talk about his most recent book, which is called How to Stay Married, The Most Insane Love Story Ever Told. It's a book that's about mercy and forgiveness. It's a book about reimagining what it looks like to be in community. And it's a book about an affair. And yet there is such hope, not only in the good news of the gospel, but also in humor. So join us for this conversation as we sit down with Harrison Scott Key to talk about his book, yes, but also how humor is an antidote to our culture warring of the moment. Listen in. We are excited today to be talking with Harrison Scott Key. Harrison is an author, uh, taught for many years at Savannah College of Art and Design. His work has appeared in uh, many publications, and he's also the author of three books, including most recently, How to Stay Married, The Most Insane Love Story Ever Told. Harrison, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, and I just want to apologize. I'm on a porch in Mississippi, which is a very appropriate setting for this discussion, but you may hear random... uh, (laughs) Hoots and hollers and cars and uh, maybe even a, a crack of a beer every now and then. But that's just cons- <laughs> consider that the soundscape of my life. That's that's exactly I what it. I would have imagined. So uh, <laughs> thank you for uh, filling all of that out for us. We're, we're really excited to talk with you. Uh, I feel like about three weeks ago, all of my friends started talking about your book. And uh, so I, I ordered it and I think I read it in a day. And so for the sake of listeners who maybe haven't had the chance to read it yet, I wanted to ask you if you re- would read a section from your book to get us started. And uh, one of the things that I love about your book is the way that you talk about the Bible. Uh, because I think if uh, for people who believe in the Bible, we treat it, we want to treat it with reverence, but you you capture the uh, the truth, but also I think the weirdness of the Bible and the way that you talk about it. And so I wonder if you would read that section uh, for us. So I'll set this up real quick too. Um, so this this happens almost, well, close to the, the center, the very middle of the book. And uh, I, my wife and I have already been through hell, the first, uh, the first four or five levels of hell already. Um, but we seem to be doing better. Um, but it's in the middle of the pandemic and things are, as they got for everybody, things are, um, 
at this point in the story and at this point in the year 2020, things were getting really weird for the, the entire world, as y'all know. And uh, so I started, I really started looking for answers. Um, I, um, I was reading every book I could get my hands on that dealt with infidelity, that dealt with marriage. I'm talking about from Anna Karenina to Fire Sermon by Jamie Quattro. Um, I read everything I could get my hands on. And so that's where I was. And so I just dove right into the, into the Bible. And I, my, my goal was, I'm just going to read this book like a book. I'm not going to carry, gonna, not going to try to carry any, any like Sunday school piety or grad school, um, you know, cynicism, intellect. <laughs> yes. I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to, I just wanted to read it. Uh, on uh, for the for what it was, so I'll read a, just a paragraph here. Halfway through the Old Testament, uh, halfway through the Old Testament, the grand comic fugue of Scripture devolves into an excruciatingly slow action movie that made me want to eat a bag of glass. The Book of First Chronicles felt like a history textbook written by somebody who kept blacking out. Reading the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, felt like reading YouTube comments written by people who really hate a video of Israel. Lamentations is quite obviously a sad book, and so is Jeremiah. The gloriously poetic book of Isaiah reads as if a clinically depressed Middle-earth elf king wrote it, and Ecclesiastes now sounded not unlike an elegantly dismal Edward Albee monologue delivered on a park bench by a wealth manager pondering suicide. And the Psalms read like a high school friend's Facebook posts about all the cryptic drama in her life that she won't fully explain, but you know it's not good and also that she might be high. I didn't feel high. I felt lost. That's fantastic. That's great. Um, thank you. That was such a fun chapter. That it was a fun, really fun chapter to write um, in part because it sort of sets up what happens in the last half of the book. Um, which is the sort of uh, this cosmic fight uh, between uh, darkness and light. Um, not, not between uh, my wife and me, but something, something more complicated, you know, something between me and me and me and God and something between her and her and her and God. Um, I, I'd love to ask you just about humor because um, on the podcast, we're, we're in the middle of the series we're talking about culture wars and I think it's easy, easy to think about culture wars in like very abstract theoretical terms or to think about them in terms of politics and, and that sort of thing. But reading your book, it strikes me that on one hand, there's all kinds of fodder for like culture war issues. You know, you're talking about Christianity, you're talking about your experience in a couple different churches that um, in some ways feel very kind of culture bound. Uh, places. And yet, um, and I mean, it's also, you're, ta you're talking about sex and you've already referenced that, you know, there's an affair that, uh, that it kind of forms the, you know, uh, impetus for the book, I guess. Um, it's a, it's a story about a person who's been deeply hurt. And yet I think what you come away with is the feeling that it's a really funny book. Um, and none of those things that I've just said would really lead somebody to think this is going to be a book that is funny. And so I, I just am curious if you could talk to us a little bit about how you think about humor. Like what, what is it? What, how, how do you think about writing something like this that's funny? Yeah. 
I um, I had this thought that that I wrote on my phone, and it's going to sound so stupid now, but I'm going to read it to you. Um, so I um, the the I'm quoting myself, which is so dumb, so <laughs> so arrogant. I'd like to read something written by Harrison, um, but uh, but I was just thinking about like what is humor, and people sort of look at humor like it's a, you know, everybody kind of looks at humor the way you would look at. Um, all right, so I I drive a truck, and it's a it's a four wheel drive because I'm a hillbilly, um, but. It, ha- it doesn't have the big four-wheel drive tires on it. It's just got like plain regular road tires. So it looks like a, it could be an awesome truck, but it just, it's just got the absolute like baby tires. And I, so I see the guys with the nice big tires and the lift kits and all that. And I want that so badly. Like it would cost, I, I have three children. I cannot afford to do that to my truck, but people look at humor sort of like the big tires and the lift kit. Like you're, you're just, you're taking something that's already like good and you're just like adding stuff to it almost extraneously. And uh, people who think that are uh, people who were abused as children um, because uh, that's a joke. You can laugh. Uh, don't laugh about abuse. Um, but, but, people who think that humor is extraneous or, or sort of, it's just one technique among lots of different techniques. Um, that's not really what it is for me at all. Uh, for me, humor is the hermeneutic. It's the, it's the way I look at the world and, uh, for better and worse. And, um, and so, I mean, you know, I did the eulogy for my dad's funeral and it was funny like really sad. Everybody was crying at the end, but like really funny, like so funny that you almost feel I shouldn't be laughing this much right now at a funeral. Um, but, but there's something, I mean, we can talk about humor all day long. Uh, it's fascinating because it can be a tool, uh, to make something more interesting or sillier or lighter, uh, to make light of something heavy. It it can do all of these things, but for, for those of us who sort of move through the world uh, uh, with a sort of detached sense of irony of not fitting in uh, or being out of place constantly everywhere we go, humor is not, it's not a tool. It's the way we see the world. It's the glasses that we see through. So exaggeration, incongruity, wordplay, these are all sort of the, the techniques of humor. Um, the way I describe it uh, in a way is um, that laughter is too Laughter is to good writing what dancing is to good music. All great literature is funny. I, I will make that argument until the day I die. It might not be funny all the way through, but, there's, but comedy is a part of life. There's a lot of comedy in the Bible, and I'm not just talking about the, the, the scenes and chapters where God laughs. Uh, as I say in the book, like, you know, there, there's the, the whole scene where uh, Elijah is taking on, you know, the priests of Baal. And, uh, so basically you've got like, you know, Billy Graham up against the sex cult. That's funny. Like <laughs> yeah. that's already funny. Yeah. And, and he's taunting them in this yeah. really weird, like, uh, like Tom Brady, like professional sports way. He's like taunting their God. Uh, it's they're like, you don't you don't see the comedy in Sunday school because you're not supposed to see it. You're just mm-hmm. supposed to talk about what's happening on a theological level. 
Yeah. So Harrison, tell us why, why are Christians not funny? You know, at, like as a group, um, I mean, if you they think... hate themselves, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I guess, you know, if we think of, you know, literarily, right. Comedies end in a marriage, right. And you get, that's the story of the Bible that at the end of time, it's the marriage supper of the lamb. Right. So we are headed into this, the Bible is a comedy and, and yet we're not very funny. So yeah. Tell us a little bit about. Ooh, about that's a, our... that is a fascinating question. Um, most Christians aren't funny for the same reasons that, uh, that, people who are uh, radically woke aren't funny. Mm -hmm. It's it's Mm -hmm. the same reason, which is they take themselves too seriously. uh, And they believe that they have to solve all of the world's problems. Uh, Christians think that, you know, we think it less now. uh, Christians, I can say we as a Christian, uh, we lost the culture war. Um, A lot of Christians don't want to admit that, or, or maybe they, maybe they're, it's easier to admit that now, but Christianity, American Christianity as a gelatinous entity of different factions has lost the culture war. Uh, But uh, until that time, I'm thinking like, especially like 80s and 90s, um, Christians really felt like they had it figured out. And this is what was going to make the world better. This is going to make America better and the world and everything. And because they took them so, because they took that calling so seriously, uh, um, solemnity cannot admit to any weakness, any imperfection. Yeah, it's that um, connection to vulnerability. It sounds like. Too. Yeah, you yeah. can't if and and so people in power. That's why you know um, people in power cannot laugh. Uh, everybody can laugh at work except the boss. Um, because if, if you, if you're vulnerable and you admit to weakness, if you admit to failure, if you admit to imperfection, um, then you are assailable, uh, and the, the vandal hordes can attack. And so this is true. There has been true of decades of Christians. I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe since the reformation, honestly, it's been true. Um, and it's, it's very true of the, of, of those in the culture who are woke. And many of my friends are highly awoke, Uh, but, but I will say it's very hard for them to laugh because they feel like they have to solve the world's problems and they have the answer. And if we would just listen to them, the world would be better. And Christians have the same problem. Yeah. It seems to me, I'm thinking about Edwin Friedman, who was a Jewish rabbi and, a, and an author who's written a lot about leadership and family systems theory, said that um, one of the signs of a society that's in regression is that it can't be playful and that everything becomes deadly serious. And I wonder about the role of humor as sort of like pointing to the truth, because I think one of the things that's funny is taking two things that shouldn't go together and holding on to both of them at the same time. And so one of the things that's happened as a result of the culture war and polarization stuff is, um, you know, this sense of like, I can't be friends with somebody who has a different view on things than I do. Um, and you know, we could think about the the pandemic or, you know, all of these things, you know, the pandemic is like one side saying like, I just believe in science and the other side saying like, well, I believe in freedom. And I, you just kind of want to scream and be like, aren't both of these things, (laughs) like, don't we believe in both of these things at the same time? 
Um, and so, yeah, it's, it feels to me like part of the potential for humor is to hold two truths that are both true and you put them together. And actually that's, that's the source of, of some really funny moments. Yeah. I mean, we could talk about humor all day long. It's a fascinating subject. Um, I do think as soon as you really, you can't be funny as soon as you, that you have an agenda, um, an agenda to persuade a group, uh, to persuade your audience, an agenda where the audience feels like they know that you like them or don't like them and you have things to say, uh, is anathema to humor. So, um, how do I say this? Like, I mean, if you, okay. So imagine the times in your marriage, you guys are married, right? Did I hear that yeah. correctly? Okay, great. Yes, we are. <laughs> how, how many years have you been married? 21. Oh, wow. Wow. Just, like think about times in your marriage. I'm talking to, to you guys. Uh, when, um, when you're not, when it's not funny, right? It's usually when you're being attacked or when you're trying to, when you're trying to say something and your partner's not listening. Or they don't care. You know, I have three daughters and they all were born with this birth defect of being funny, which sucks because we'll be at dinner and I'm like trying to tell them about some really awesome author that I met at a book festival and they're just making fart noises and they're like, dad, we don't care. Shut up. It's so boring. Nobody cares. And I'm like, I'm like, no, listen, this is important. You know, like absolutely the opposite of funny. It's because like I am trying, I have something, uh, I, I have a point of view. I'm not playful. It's the opposite of playful. Uh, fighting is the opposite of play. It's ri it's physically rigid. Your body gets rigid. Your words get rigid. And there's something about humor that is light, lightness, playfulness. Um, and because you ultimately, when we're talking about ultimate things here and the sort of happy ending of, of scripture and of the sort of cosmic reality and the happy ending of the Bible, despite all the dragons in that last chapter, um, is that we don't fix the world. We don't do it. We can't fix the world. Other, other beings can fix the world, but not us. We are called to a different job of fixing the world, which is, uh, to shine a light, to love, um, to build beautiful things. And so if you think your job is to fix the world, make the world better and explain this true thing to the world, there's no room for humor in that at all. You have to exude and put a, put a, a face of power on that. Um, that's why, you know, uh, CEOs, pastors of large churches, uh, there's no room for humor because it takes a lot of money to keep the lights on. I will say about this book, um, I knew I was going to have to write about religion and God because when you're wrestling with uh, uh, ultimate questions of, well, is your family going to survive? Will, will my marriage survive? What will happen to my wife and me? Um, you're immediately going to big cosmic answers. You're looking for wisdom. I'm reading uh, every book of uh, a Hindu and Buddhist and Confucian and Jewish and Muslim and Christian wisdom trying to get, I wasn't just reading the Bible. I was reading everything, um, trying to figure out uh, sort of the answer. So I knew I was going to have to write about religion, but I didn't, but I, I wanted to sell this book to a secular publisher. I did not because I wanted everybody to read it. I didn't just want Christians to read it. 
Um, and so I realized, I tell my students, I say, like, you know, if you look at comedy or you look on Twitter, everybody's making fun of people who are different from them. You've got the left making fun of the right. You've got the right making fun of the left. Um, whereas if you really want to be funny, like put your name on a piece of paper and then draw concentric circles around your name. And the first circle is that's you. And the second circle, those are your, that's your family, the people you grew up with. Then the next circle out, those are your close friends. And then you've got your neighborhood and then your city and then your state, your region, uh, all the different identities that everybody has. Like, you know, whether it's like for me, it's a uh, Christian, uh, Southern, I'm a writer, all these different identities and concentric circles. And to, to be funny, you have to start in the very middle of the circle. You have to start in the mirror. You have to look in the mirror and make fun of what you see there. Not the person across the street or across the ocean. You have to start there. And so many people fail at that because we are, as a culture, we want to make fun of the person who's very, very different from us. So who can make fun of Christians the most? A Christian can because a Christian has been in that world but he, and he can explain it or she can explain it to people outside that world. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to make so much fun of Christianity and I'm not going to say anything that's false in this book. I'm just going to say true things about my experience growing up because I mean, you know, atheists or people who aren't Christians can make fun of the church all day long and it will never be as funny as somebody who's, who grew up in that church can be. Cause they don't get it like, like we do. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to make fun of the church in a way that is both making fun of uh, the church that I grew up in and that, and what, what we screw up as, as a body of believers. Um, but I'm, but I also want to show the beauty of it too. I don't want to make any arguments. I'm not trying to convince anybody to join a church. I'm just talking about, this is what happened to me and this is what was weird about it and what was beautiful about it. I knew I was going to not please, uh, there's no way to please everybody, but I did want to make fun. I, I was very intentional about a book for non-Christian audiences that talked about the church. I, yeah, I have a real quick question on that. You know, I love, I love hearing it in the same way that your paragraph, right. Or your whole chapter really on the weirdness of the Bible makes it fresh and strange and funny and, and odd again to those of us who are so used to the Bible. Um, you know, it was really refreshing to read how you kind of explained faith to a secular audience. Can you just speak about what that role looks like, um, kind of translating, having your feet in two different worlds, writing about faith for, you know, a, you know, a secular publisher? Um, and how do, how do we make it strange both to ourselves um, and maybe strange in a good way for people to reimagine the Christian story? Yeah, that's a good question. Um... Well, hmm. so the thing that really helped, the, the thing that really gave shape to how I did that in this book is that everything really revolved around the story of my marriage. And am, am I going to, am I going, what am I going to do about my wife's infidelity? Uh, am I going to kick her out? Am I going to love her and kick her out in a loving way? <laughs> am I going to let her stay here, but like be angry with her? I just, all these questions. Uh, what do I do about our kids? What do I do about money? I, I knew I, I I knew I had to I had to go to uh, to sort of transcendent wisdom to answer those questions, um, and so that so it wasn't like let me tell you why I am a Christian. The it was more in this book. It was more of let me tell you that I am a Christian, 
And so we can get to the point of how does that influence what I'm going to do about my marriage? How does that shape that? So I, I'm, I teach in higher ed. Uh, I'm a dean at SCAD in Savannah, Georgia, uh, where I sometimes teach in the writing department. And so I have worked in uh, secular education my whole career for, for 25 years. Um, and so I've always lived in both worlds where my colleagues, you know, invite me to their, you know, Wiccan summer harvest festival or whatever. And I'm like, and then, or I might say, oh, I can't be at that meeting at that time because, you know, I'll be at church or something. And so, so my, my friends, my colleagues would learn, they figured out that I went to church or they would. Um, and so I've always been in a position where I've had to explain like, like, don't worry. Like, we're not the weird kind of Christians. We're kind of weird. You know, I would, I would always find myself saying things like that. There are a lot of people in the church who um, are so private about their faith or they are just, they, you know, especially in the South where, where I live, you never encounter anybody that looks or acts or talks or thinks differently from you in a lot of communities. This isn't just true of the South. I mean, that's true of Brooklyn as well. Um, and so, uh, but I have lived my entire career having to quietly defend my faith to all my colleagues that I'm friends with that I really like and support and love and have meetings with and help them through their own life situations. And I've had to quietly defend all of my pagan friends to all the Christians that I go to church with. Uh, they're all talking about the culture wars or, you know, uh, or whatever QAnon bull crap that they're reading about on Facebook. And I'm like, guys, guys, it really, that's real. Most people don't know. Please stop. Like, don't do that. So because I'm in, you talked about borders and boundaries and straddling mm -hmm. two worlds, like I'm always yeah. explaining one group to the other group. And so that was very natural to do in the book to say, hey, so I grew up in this church. It was really weird, but also kind of awesome. Let's talk about that. And that's also very healing for me because I can then get to revisit like what it was like to grow up in the church. So I talk about all the like I say thing in the first one of the first three chapters, I talk about growing up in the Church of Christ in Mississippi and how um, it was so intellectually backward and intellectually incurious. And yet there was more diversity in our church than I have seen in any progressive university I have ever been to. We had uh, we had a, a man who uh, a white journalist who uh, who won a MacArthur Genius Grant um, for writing about um, the opening of cold cases, uh, civil rights cold cases. Um, like several movies were made about this guy, like Mississippi Burning, that movie from the 80s. Like he did a lot of the journalism that caused all that time. So this, this white journalist who was absolute like racial justice crusader. Um, my Sunday school teacher was this like this really giant, awesome black man who could quote the Bible, like top to bottom. Uh, but also like my father, who was a total racist football coach was also at this church. And the woman in front of us had been, um, she had been beaten almost to death when her husband raped her and then realized he had gotten her pregnant and he didn't want any more kids. He almost beat her to death. So I say, I have a line like something like, um, it's easy to believe the devil when you've seen him with your own eyes, you know, like, I, there's just there was so much diversity and yet it was so intellectually backwards so that's a beautiful that's a beautiful and a terrible thing all at once and so that was really fun to explore that and kind of, there was a very soft argument in the book of like look 
don't hate don't hate Christians too much, but also like totally, you can totally hate some of them if you want to. <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. So one of the things that hit me, so the book's called How to Stay Married, but you're not really answering that question, right? You're not giving advice here. Um, but it seems like if, that, if there's w- one of the themes that comes out is the importance of mercy and forgiveness. And um, at, at one point, you, I mean, you, you kind of humorously talk about a pastor whose response is basically like, we could excommunicate her. Um, <laughs> yes. But then what, but what then a the, guy. Yeah. <laughs> but but then this other the, the, the overriding impulse of, um, you know, how how did you get to the place of thinking about I have to, uh, you know, it, it, thinking about the weirdness of Christianity? How, how do I respond to this devastation with mercy and forgiveness uh, when, when responding to something that's been so personally painful? I mean, how, how did you think about that? Uh I mean, it took a whole book to answer that question. <clears throat> so I definitely yeah. can't do it in, in 30 seconds. Um, <clears throat> so the short answer is you really just have to read the book to sort of understand that. I mean, it was, it was absolutely, it's absolutely miraculous that we're still married. Uh, it was definitely not my strength. Like I didn't just go, you know what? My wife did this terrible thing, but I am so awesome that I'm going to forgive her and we're going to make a million dollars off this book and we're going to live so happy and people are going to know how awesome I am. Um, That's what some of the readers are kind of taking it like that. It's more like when you see a miracle, you want to tell people about it. You know, when you go through hell and make it out alive, still married, uh, you want to stand up on the roof and scream it into a bullhorn. This freaking amazing thing just happened to my family, and I want to tell people about it. Um, so that's just as sort of preface to your question. Like I, um, I think the short answer, like how I could summon the the mercy and forgiveness to forgive my wife and be reconciled to her, um, experiencing love from the people around me gave me great strength. Um, Experiencing love from my friends who supported us through this, um, who gave me a place to be myself, total weirdo, um, 
a church home that was absolutely um, weird and broken and idyllic in so many ways. I talk, I talk about it in the book, as you guys know, I call it the church of broken windows. Um, but it's very, it's a very real place uh, where I could be my like angry, cynical, rude, um, funny, weird, judgy, bossy self and still be loved by people like they could somehow see through all that and be like, Hey man, like come hang out with us. <laughs> like They didn't care that I was a total jackass. Um, that seeing that love, not just through the hardest parts of our marriage, but even before everything went down, like that was, there was something about friends standing around you in a circle. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to do the most, predictable Christian podcast thing right now. <laughs> and I'm going to talk about the Lord of the Rings. Okay. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I did not mean to become so obvious, but you know, they have this fellowship and you know, uh, Frodo has this job to do. He's got this terrible, terrible job to do of bearing this ring and trying to destroy it. But all these men, and elves and dwarves, <laughs> all these people, <laughs> they surround him and they're like, I'm in, I'm in. And something about people saying I'm in gives you strength. That, that what's the word encouragement means to, to give courage. And so even when they get separated and they're all fighting the orcs off somewhere else in Middle Earth and he's by himself with Sam and they're still struggling, just the memory of their friendships and all the people who have loved them and all the beautiful things they have seen in their life. That's what gives them strength to climb Mount Doom and get rid and, and de- defeat evil. It's all, it's the, it's the thought that you're not in this alone. Um, if you think you're in something alone, you will die. You, loneliness is the great killer. Lo- I fully believe that the plague of loneliness is far worse than any COVID pandemic ever could be. Uh, people are, are writing, have been writing about it for years and it's still a problem. And so I feel like the, how surrounded my family was by friends who loved us and cared about us. It gave me a strength that is very hard to describe in language. In the book, I say it felt like I had, um, it felt like I had, like this was when my wife uh, revealed um, that she that she was back with this guy and that she was going to marry him and she was going to leave us even after I thought we had healed. Um, the memory of my father and grandfather and my parents and how much love that they showed to each other even amidst terrible struggles throughout their lives, no bitterness. The, the, the knowing that I had friends all over town who were ready to come at a moment's notice and help and bring food or clean my house. Um, it gave me a strength that did not feel my, like my own. I felt like I could have flown to the moon and back. I felt that powerful, but it was not my power. When I say powerful, I mean, I felt whatever is about to happen, I am ready for it. It felt very, um, that realizing like, oh, the real power I have is not my power at all. This power comes from God and community. And this is the kind of power that love creates. And seeing that was very, experiencing that was very humbling. Um, and, and so when it became time to uh, 
decide whether or not I was going to reconcile with my wife. Um, so like, okay, so I, I guess you could break it down. Like, um, in one sense, learn, seeing, like really coming to terms with how, um, how much grief my wife had been holding on to for so long made it really hard to hate her. Uh, and it wasn't pity. It wasn't like, Oh, so many bad things happened to my wife. You know, it's okay, baby. You can do whatever you want. It wasn't like that at all. It was more like when I really truly began to see her, when I started to see who she was, what she had suffered, not just, in the early years of our marriage where I was very distracted by my own ambitions and my career and my selfishness, but also just, you know, her father was a PCA pastor who left, uh, who had an affair and left their family. She was a daddy's girl. That was real. That was a real blow to her that she never really got over and never really dealt with. Her mom died 10 days before our wedding, uh, which, uh, that'll, that'll put a cramp in any party, you know, it really will. Um, and there were so many things I realized like it was so easy when, when a partner commits infidelity or any other sort of crime against you, it's very easy to judge and be like, man, you're a terrible person. You are a monster. Um, but when I really truly started to see my wife and that really didn't even begin to happen until the separation when she moved out and I really started reflecting on her and her, how she had grown up, uh, how I had hurt her, um, how, how much hurt she brought into our wedding, into our marriage. It was really hard to hate her after that. Reflecting on my own limitations, there's a whole chapter in the book about me reflecting on how I made my marriage not a very fun place to be. When one of my buddies who was a therapist, he said, you know, if, a, if you're going to reconcile in a, in a situation like this, then both spouses usually have to own their part in it. And he wasn't saying that I caused the affair. He was just saying it might be helpful to look in the mirror and decide how you made your marriage not a fun place. Um, thinking about how terrible a person I am was not fun. Reflecting on all the time, all the little ways that I just stuck a little dagger in my wife at, at a party or at a dinner, um, all the things I did that hurt her or that were selfish, um, it was very convicting. It was much harder to hate my wife. As I say in the book, after all that reflection, it was very obvious that that uh, infidelity aside, I was easily the most unlikable person in my marriage. And um, that made that made forgiveness, I won't say um, likely, uh, and I won't say it didn't make it happen, but it made it more possible. Because I'm like, you know, like, I'm, not, I'm a pretty terrible person too. Maybe I didn't try to blow up the world but I definitely tried to shoot it with all the guns that I had, you know? Um, so reflection, self-reflection, recognizing your own shortcomings. I, I, that's my advice to everybody in every marriage. If your marriage is suffering, um, step back and look at how you are the asshole. Just do it. Spend, spend, uh, go on a weekend retreat with yourself in the desert and write down every terrible thing that you have ever done. And then call every good friend you have ever had or ever lost and say, how have I hurt you? And only call the people who will tell you. You will end up with a book's worth of stuff that is very convicting and make you feel like a POS. It will hurt. If you do that, it's really hard to hate anybody. The, one of the happiest moments in this book is when, like, I don't know, two-thirds of the way through, she tries to break it off with him and she can't. 
she tries to block his number and she can't put summon the strength to do it. And I pull her suitcase out and I say, go to him. And I just like threw it on the bed. And I was like, put your clothes here and go. You love this man. Obviously I can't stop you. Please like go to him. Like, I know you don't want to leave your kids. I know you don't want to leave your home, but like, I, I didn't have an affair. So I'm not leaving. I'm, she wanted me to, I was like, I'm not, this is my house. This is where I live with the children and the dog. We're all very happy. Clearly you don't want to be in this family. I can't make you stay and I can't make you love me. Here's your suitcase. Go. And it was not, it was funny. She laughed. It was very funny. Like, because I was giving up power. I was like, I have no power. I will not fight you for custody. You can have half the babies. I'll have the other half. Well, whatever. Like it'll, we'll work it out. We'll sell the house. You can have half the money. I'm not fighting you. And giving up all of that power and just saying, I won't fight you. I can't win. Like forgiveness all of a sudden like rises like a sun in that dark place where it's like, oh, wait, it's like, I can't do this. I can't fix this. And all of a sudden when you admit that defeat or that weakness or that frailty or that inability to solve all the world's problems, then that that little light of love on the horizon and forgiveness all of a sudden starts to shine. And you're like, maybe there's something there toward that light because it's not right here. It's not in me. You know, as you say that, and, you know, just to kind of connect some dots and wrap our conversation up, I'm struck with the both, you know, you're talking about humor, you're talking about repentance, you're talking about vulnerability, um, community. And it strikes me that the connection between often a lot of those is having kind of a, a sanctified, let's, you know, to use a Christian word, but um, imagination, you know, and so how do we think about that development of an imagination, right? That, that, that then welcomes vulnerability, welcomes potential pain and suffering. It's, you know, takes itself lightly, is able to play. Um, what is that formation of a more Christian imagination that, what does that look like? Do you think? I think celebrate, <clears throat> celebrate beauty wherever you see it is one little tidbit of advice. You know, you have to stop fighting. I mean, you know, I, I went to college, I went to a Christian college, Bellhaven, uh, which is in Mississippi. It's a small uh, Presbyterian liberal arts school. But I, I was here in the 90s, or sorry, I was there in the 90s. And this is during, like, you know, everybody was reading Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis and talking about, you know, worldview. And um, I really thought we were supposed to be changing the world with art. We were supposed to be changing the world with great acting and great music and great dance uh, as a, just a tool of evangelism. And uh, while I don't want to get into the like theology of it, like that is not the way to create great art. I think everybody knows that now, like stop trying to win an argument with your story. Stop, like go watch Barbie and stop trying to decide like who won in that movie or like the people who make that movie, uh, who made us such a beautiful movie. And yeah, there's a bunch of stuff in it that I was like, Oh, that's so stupid. Why are they like, like halfway through Barbie, I was like, you're about to lose me. This is about to become like a, like freshman 101, like debate about gender roles. Uh, but, but it, it saved itself from the brink. It brought itself back. And there was so much beauty in that. But, you know, if I had seen that film when I was 21 and I thought I was supposed to save the world with great art, I would, that movie, I would have gotten so angry with that film and I wouldn't have enjoyed it at all. 
but there's so much beauty in, in that film. It's such a beautiful film. And there's, and so it's like, stop trying to stop looking at art and beauty as an argument and, and enjoy it for what it is. Um, there are more important things in heaven and earth than, um, theological or philosophical points i so that so like the, the christian imagination is just the imagination um and so like everybody's got a geiger counter right now and when people start talking when they start watching the news or reading or listening to music it's a, the geiger counter comes out and they're like is this got the approved ideas in it does this art agree with me or does it hate me and want to kill me and hurt me you know and everybody, left, right, and center, everybody's doing this. And you got to put the Geiger counter down. You got to get a different Geiger counter, which is what, what, true, what true beautiful good thing is being said here, no matter who's saying it. Like, I mean, there were so many, some of the best advice I got during the darkest days of my marriage um, was from like my total wacko astrology friend. It was like, let me read your chart, Harris. And I'm like, go to hell, devil woman. What are you talking about? Read my chart? Like, are you insane? She's like, oh, I see your moon. Now it all makes sense. I'm like, you are crazy. But she was so, but she would listen to me and she would listen to the things that I would talk about. She wouldn't make fun. Um, she would let me be like, you're crazy. Your advice is really bad. She didn't get offended by that. Um, despite all the her weird, you know, astrology stuff. And, but, uh, and my sort of making fun of her because of it at the end, she was just giving me really good advice as a friend and she was listening to me and she was just trying to show me like, she knew that I needed, she knew that I was desperate for answers. And she was like, well, some people look at their tarot cards and I'm like, I think you're crazy. I don't want you to do my cards. I think that is so stupid, but she would just let, she was, <clears throat> she didn't get offended. She didn't get offended that I thought she was an idiot. And when I made fun of her tarot cards, she said, that's fine. We don't have to do them. How are you feeling today? And I was like, this is a nice person. This person is so kind and they care. And so I think um, being able to realize that like not every engagement and encounter, whether it's an encounter with a person or with art, that that is not, um, that it's not a fight, that you're not trying to decide who's winning, who's not winning, who's, who's right, who's not right. You're just looking for beauty and um accepting um everything you take in on its own merit yeah harrison uh this has been such a fun conversation uh thoughtful funny and uh just just like the book so thank you for um what you've written here and offering it to us thanks for your time uh here it's helped i think stretch our uh imaginations as well and i hope um give us a greater uh, appreciation, not just for kind of the, um, you know, the didactic approach of who's winning, who's losing, but um, appreciating the beauty and the humor and the truth in the midst of real life. So thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. And uh, we really enjoyed being with you. Thank you. Yes. And thank you for your book. We loved it. Well, you guys asked some great questions. Thank you. I, I you have asked me some questions that have, are going to make me think, because I feel like Somebody needs to write that essay. Like, why aren't Christians funny? What is the Christian imagination? Is that what does that mean? Like, those are really interesting, thoughtful pieces. Um, 
that somebody should write. Really great questions. I really appreciate it, guys. You're welcome. And maybe I'll get to writing them. So appreciate <laughs> <Do> it. <Yeah. laughs> get on it, Ashley. Okay. Okay. All right. I'll bye, send guys. it to you before. Thanks so much, Harrison. All right. Bye. Thanks. Bye. The Cartographers is hosted by Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales. It's edited by Nathan Michelle. The Cartographers is a production of the Willowbray Institute. Find out more at willowbray.org.